Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's the 23rd of July, and Franz Johansson is our special guest, author of The Click Moment. Franz, welcome. Thank you very much, Steve. Thank you. So excited nice to, to have you here. So excited. Um, I met you at the Intersection event uh, where I got a free copy of the book, and I'm not exaggerating. I, I downloaded the audio version, listened to it uh, within maybe a week of that conference, and there's probably not a day that's gone by that I haven't thought about the concepts in the book. I'm not trying to butter you up. I'm serious. This has been a very <laughs> significant book for me. I'm glad to hear it. Um, thank you. It's a significant book for me as well, just writing it, frankly. It, it, it shows. Coming up on the future of education, next week, Don Winkle in our limited summer schedule is going to talk about student entrepreneurship and true flipped learning, uh, not just flipping the instruction outside of the classroom, but flipping who drives the instruction. And Michelson and Connected Learners on August 20th. Uh, that should be really fun. Uh, David Marshak on self-design. Michelle Cordy, who I think is back in the room, uh, on hacking your classroom on September 3rd. She is a hoot. You're going to love her. Doug Johnson on the Indispensable Librarian. Christine Grosslow on Parenting Without Borders. Will Richardson on Y School. And then all of October is Connected Educator Month, uh, for which I'm, again, a primary organizer. So we should have events every day. It will be lots of fun. Uh, coming up in virtual conference land, our uh, virtual homeschooling conference is in August, the 23rd and 24th. Again, these are all free events. This, this one's being pulled together very rapidly, but what a huge response to this. Can't wait. This is homeschooling, unschooling, free, democratic, and alternative schools. It's all about sort of different ways of thinking about schools. In September is the STEM X conference. Uh, in October is the Library 2.013 conference. That will be a part of Connected Educator Month. That's its third year of this Future of Libraries conference. Um, as well, we're going to do a pre-conference week on teacher librarians in K-12, and that should be fun. And then in November is the great five-day, 24-hour-day global education conference, 500 sessions. It is a blast. If you've never been, again, please join us. All of those are listed at web20labs.com. If you've missed any of our shows, they're all recorded. Uh, last week, I did talk to Black Mountain Soul. There was a problem with the internet connection, and it did not get recorded. But I will tell you, you're going to hear a lot about the self-organized learning environment at Black Mountain, North Carolina, because that's where I am right now. And our family is moving here for a year to do some special things. So lots of fun. Close to 400 interviews, all up in full Blackboard Collaborate form in an MP3. Those of you who are in the room now, you can let us know where you're listening from. Look for the star to the left of the map. It's the second icon down, and then click on the map. Yeah. You have to click that star twice. Feel free to shout out in the chat where you're listening from. I feel like, uh, what was her name on uh, Kids TV? I see New Zealand, <laughs> <laughs> Florida. What, what, what was, who, who was that? Somebody with a better memory than me. <laughs> going to remember. Romper room, right? <laughs> okay, well, in the interest of time, feel free to put in the chat where you're listening from, and we'll move, we'll move forward from the map to get ourselves going here.
So um, there's no way we're going to cover all the material in the book. This is not going to happen, right? But my goal, my stated goal for this show is to get those of you who are listening to it to buy the book. <laughs> it's uh, a hardcover special right now with Amazon. And um, really, I know a book is valuable to me when I keep thinking and talking about it for months. I've read books before that I really enjoy. And then I realized I haven't thought about them much afterwards. But this book I've continued to think about. And it cl it's clear that you put a lot of work into it because the book is very well organized. So this brings up the first kind of obvious point. Right? We'll, we'll ask you to tell a bit the story of the Medici effect and the, the way in which you learned these lessons about success. But it's not like you just sort of slapped this thing together and said, well, I'm not really responsible for the success, it's going to happen or it's not based on a variety of circumstances. So I'm just going to put something sort of slipshod out there. There's clearly real work involved here. So what's the balance between the work that we do and recognizing that success doesn't always come? That's a great question. Um, and I, I will, uh, what I will say is there's a couple of different ways of answering it. I mean, um, First of all, uh, sometimes when people hear about what the click moment is about, and, says, and, and, they, and they sort of, the notion that serendipity plays such a great part in success, uh, one of the reactions to that might be, well, uh, then that means that I can just do whatever I want, and, uh, and then, you know, if I'm, if I'm lucky, then, then that's going to work out. Well, you know, if you dig deep enough, you're going to find some people that have done some real, you know, crappy stuff and it still works out for them. But obviously, that is not really where, where it's getting at because here's, here's, here's the crux. Only in a very narrow set of areas, and maybe we can get into this in more detail, uh, can you predict fully what it is that you need to do. And those are sort of areas like tennis or golf where there are very established rules uh, and it allows you to practice in a very specific way. But for, for the rest of us, where the, where, where the rules are much more fluent and where they, can, where they can change, it's about actually doing something that is different, doing something that, is, uh, that sets us apart. And that's hard work. I mean, the easy thing is to do the exact same thing over and over again. So, for instance, if you're going to write a book like a quick moment, going back to the example that you're using here, the easy thing to do would be just to look at some other book and say, well, I'm just going to kind of copy that, and, and then, then, I'll, then I'll do that. But the moment you say, I actually want to do something different, uh, you're now increasing the, the, both the, the, the need for creative thoughts and the need to test. Because one of the big points I make in the book is that since you're not sure what's going to work or not, since success is serendipitous, you have to keep testing what I call place purposeful bets. Because when I wrote this book, I placed a tremendous amount of bets. Yes, this is a result of hard work, but the, all the source that you read in that book, Steve, there's 30 fully developed, fully researched stories that never made it in there, okay, for various reasons. But I didn't know that when I started. Um, and and there's ex this avenues that I explore. There there there's 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 uh, uh, roads that I took, and there's ways I structured this book that didn't work. This what you're looking at is sort of the third iteration of the structure of the book, and a large number of of, of pieces of stories that never really made it in. And that's 
that's what it means to sort of capture the unexpected. Set yourself up to capture the serendipitous. It means that that is sort of how you have to operate. So the balance to your question, that the balance is that you need to test something, but this thing has to be different or, or unique if you're going to have a chance to set yourself apart. Okay, so we know we have great stories of famous scientists who aren't appreciated until after years after their passing or whatever they've done. We know that there are books that we've read that were not recognized in the lifetime of the author as being a great book, but later as yeah. a great book. So we, at some level, we know that success doesn't always come to those who have put in the work mm -hmm. or have done something of significance. What you say in the book is that we often tell the success story from the perspective of the winner, and that that story sometimes, most of the time, is unrelated to what actually happened, right? We tell it in reverse. We have this innate Absolutely. desire for, we have an innate desire for pattern or sense making, and so we kind of construct the story. The, br the brilliant way in which you describe this is the success of your first book. Are you willing to tell that shortly? Yes, I. Uh, so, so um, um, sometimes, um, so I wrote a book called The Medici Effect, just for background, and it went out to do quite well. Uh, been translated into 18 languages, been sold you know, all over the world. It allowed me to build a, a, a career as a, you know, doing keynotes. I started a hedge fund based on those principles, and now I have a consulting firm that operates around the world. Right. So, so what happens is sometimes the people. Um, and so, so, well, what I was going to say is, when you look at when you look at when you look at that piece of it, uh, people will will and have frequently still do explain what it was that I did. It's sort of like a case study, um, uh, and 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 there's all kinds of things that I that I took into account. Um, uh, how uh, you know how. For instance, I chose a trending topic. Innovation is a hot topic. It's important to choose a trending topic. The title of the book is catchy. So, uh, you know, it refers to Renaissance. And in particular, people refer to my marketing strategy. And so here's the thing, that in the book, The Medici Effect, uh, I talk a lot about how diversity drives innovation. Now, if you're a first-time author, uh, which I was, uh, was at this time, uh, when you're not really known, I was not a known CEO or a known um, uh, you know, professor at a business school. Um, you know, here you are, you have to compete with a lot of other people that write about innovation. And, um, and so when people try to explain the success of the retrospect after the fact, uh, they will say, well, you did something very clever, friends, because, because the message diversity drives innovation appeals to constituency that is sort of different from what most innovation authors appeal to. They, uh, they will go after the chief innovation officer, the head of R&D, and so on. But there's also another officer in the company called the chief diversity officer. And you went for them, and then they sort of let you into the company, and then here's where you were able to sort of spread the message of your book. Very cleverly done, Frank. It's just brilliant. Well, yeah, that's easy to say after the fact. That's how the story becomes put together after the fact. But what really happened was um, I woke up one morning after having had a dream of two light beams intersecting, and I was wondering what happens at these intersections. And then I wrote this book, 
And when the book came out, I was one of these authors competing with other sort of innovation authors, uh, going after the chief innovation officer and head of R&D to try to make them sort of resonate with my message. And then one day, my wife came back from her job as a consultant at J.P. Morgan Chase at the time. She was a diversity consultant there at the time. And she had just been tasked to find the, the business case for diversity. And, <laughs> and basically, uh, she said, you know, Frank, I think your book, your book has it. And this was completely unexpected. I, despite the fact that we spent a lot of time talking about this, we hadn't really made a connection between my work in innovation and her work in diversity, but all of a sudden it clicked. And what happened was we realized that there is a connection. It turns out she was right. And within weeks, I was presenting to CEOs, well, there's actually to the head of the investment bank at the time of David Morgan Chase, Steve Black. And this in turn spawned this thing of chief diversity officers seeking me out to help explain to their, uh, to their leaders, to their CEOs, you know, why diversity was important. Um, and it, it, it set the stage for, for the book to become very successful and for me to sort of build a consultant firm around it. And I very much remember one evening at a client center when the head of strategy leaned over to me and said, I love your side door strategy. You walked into the side door. And that was when I realized that what in his mind appeared like a brilliant strategy, in my mind was a serendipitous conversation with my wife. So that, serendipitous, that serendipitous conversation with your wife, you would call a click moment. So this That's is right. a moment that, that potentially might not happen, but when it does happen, there's this feeling that something sort of of significance has happened. It kind of drives you forward. It shifts the direction. It illuminates something, right? And you describe in the book all of these things that we sort of would assume were very patterned, methodical successes that, in fact, yes. depended on click moments. It's, 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 it's stunning because once I had that insight about my book, I started wondering, well, what if this is true all over the place, right? So what if... So Microsoft became the largest company in the world in the 90s, and everybody would sort of would ascribe that success to Windows 3.0. So it follows to reason that they would have, must have focused intensely on Windows 3.0 in order to make it the keystone, the, the launch pad of everything else to follow. Except they didn't. They were trying to shut it down. It was the serendipitous conversation between two people, one at Microsoft and actually one that was traveling to Germany. It just stopped by the Redmond campus for a week. It was one of three people working on Windows at the time. And they had to party, they meet up, they have a conversation, and everything changes after that. And Windows ultimately becomes the, the cornerstone at which Microsoft builds its empire. It, now, this makes, doesn't make sense to us in retrospect. Of course, this must have been part of their intricate strategy. Of course it was planned and predicted, et cetera, et cetera, but it's just not true. And, and if we examine our own careers, we realize it's not true. We accept when, you know, most of the people I'm assuming here that are, that are on probably have somebody that they mentor. And if you think about that instinct and that mentorship, we would we, we sort of, if somebody asks us, well, how would, how, how, tell me about your career options, if they, they, they could ask any one of us. And we would say, well, well, here's what happened, and we sort of lay out a storyline that makes this seem very planned and predicted. And, here's, and when, they, when we give them advice, we sort of say, well, here's how you should think about it, and here are important things to do. But the truth is that our own storylines are almost always serendipitous. We moved to city because of a, uh, of a boyfriend or a girlfriend, 
we uh, we had it was a comp we took one job and we thought we were going to get it, but we didn't because of something. But that led to another opportunity to open up a whole different area and a whole different field. These are the stories that drives and fuels our lives, and we forget about them when we try to set up sort of a, a pathway for others when we talk about success. Which, by the way, is what I think is one of the biggest issues for education today. Now, maybe I'm jumping ahead, but I definitely want to get into talking about how education is structured around not exactly quick moments. Good. We're going to get there, I promise. Yeah. I, so, yeah. <laughs> a lot of educators have read Malcolm Gladwell. They know this 10,000 hour thing, or it's the talent code from Dan Coyle, or it's, it's one of these sort of uh, looks at uh, how time is associated with success. So how does that match up with what you found? So, so right, in Outliers, Michael Gladwell makes a very, very interesting point. He says that uh, success really is not so much a matter of talent as it is a very dedicated, uh, deliberate practice in a very specific field. So for instance, if you want to become the best in the world at tennis, you should practice 10,000 hours or more at tennis. And the reason that rule works is because 10,000 hours is a lot of hours. So you're just way ahead of everybody else. And, so, and I talked about Serena Williams in a quick moment. Her success is less a matter of talent and more a matter of her actually practice far more than everybody else. And you know what? We see examples of this all over the place. So Tiger Woods, same thing. Chess players, same thing. Over and over again, we see this 10,000 hour rule plays out. And this rule has been used to explain success more broadly, more generally. But that doesn't really hold up upon social examination. So for instance, uh, let's take somebody like um, Reed Hastings. So he was the founder of Netflix. How many hours of practice did Reed Hastings have in video rentals? And it's essentially none. He rented a couple of videos. And yet, he is a leader and revolutionized that industry. Or Richard Branson, who we know very well, right? So you have him launching Virgin Airlines. How many hours of practice did he have running an airline? None. He started with a lawyer. So there seems to be something off about this 10,000 hour rule. In this category, tennis, uh, uh, golf, chess, it works. But in everywhere else, it seems to not hold true. And the difference is that the rules in tennis never change. Never change. I make this point that, that um, uh, uh, 50 years ago, right, um, uh, when you served a ball of tennis, you have to keep one foot on the ground. But they changed that rules. So you could jump and serve. Wow, that's, that's amazing. That's what, that's, what, that's what like change means in a field like tennis. Could you imagine what it means for almost any other industry, what it means for education, what it means? It, it's just the rules are changing constantly, endlessly, all the time, which means that you can't really predict exactly what you need to do to be successful. That's the so uh, we may or may not dive deeply enough in the education conversation to talk about sort of the, the original purposes of public schooling and the degree to which in the progressive era there was an actual stated implication or desire to manage yeah. a population of people and sort of control them by an elite few. We may not go there, yeah. but if we stay sort of at the surface level of education, it's very easy to see that the kind of training, the preparing for tests that, that we currently call education fits a paradigm of work that's very different than sort of the reality of what most people are going to experience right now. 
without a doubt. Um, it is the entire education system is set up on predictability. In fact, even say that you came in and looked at the education system and you had five seconds to try to understand it, you would say predictability. Because what happens after, so you have year one, like first grade elementary school, what happens after that? Second grade elementary school, and after that, third grade elementary school. So, so right there, the notion of predictability is just baked in hardcore into the system. And all, everything else is built upon this predictability. Right? So we are training ourselves from the very first moment that there is a path, there is a predictable path, and you can sort of, maybe you can accelerate along the path, perhaps, but this is the path nonetheless. When not only has the rest of the world never really worked that way, but it, it works even less that way today. So, so it, it, there's so many points around this that, I, that, I, that, that, that gets me worked up. I'll just mention one. You know, there seems to be, it's like a quantum, uh, quantum effect that happens somewhere after the second year in college. So, so say that you're like in, in like eighth grade or ninth grade or something like that. Say that you're 15 years old. Well, there's a whole body of, uh, this, this, at that point, we're extremely concerned whether or not you are at a 14-year-old's level of math, for instance, to pick, pick something like you're thinking yourself, you're foot level math. Well, this is a concern. Let's put in all kinds of resources. Let's focus. Let's and this holds true as you wander up. You know, so it doesn't matter. If I said, well, I'm 23 year old, 23 years old, but I'm at a 22 year old's level of math, that statement doesn't even make any sense. So we are hyper concerned about driving this up, and then all of a sudden. We don't care. Like, why is this so important to have massively predicted? And, then, and the reason why we don't care is because, guess what? We now are in the real world. And in the real world, these things simply don't matter as much because the real world is far more unpredictable, far more serendipitous. But what, what, what education sets us up to do is, is to squeeze all that out to go for the for the right answer, and even I mean, even when we even when we try to expose ourselves to the unexpected, it becomes still what the right answer is. Um, and I can talk about that forever. It's just it, it is. In other words, there's a right way to to be to to um, uh, to do something um, uh, that's a little bit different. Um, and the real world doesn't matter at all. This, by the way, does not mean. I mean. I'm a, I'm a huge for learning things. Learning, I, I, I studied very hard as a, as a kid throughout my childhood. I, of course, absolutely. But there were certain things, there certainly in my life that I felt that kept me open for this notion of the unpredictable. Uh, and in that sense, I consider myself a bit lucky and fortunate. Um, uh, and, and, and education as a whole has... Uh, it's structured to sort of speak. So if we look at business through the frame of randomness and serendipity, it gives you the opportunity in the book to kind of describe some strategies for rethinking kind of how you position yourself to accomplish things of worth and value. So let's kind of, since you're willing to yep. go there, let's kind of look at some of those things and then maybe put them within the language of education. 
because for me, one of sort of the primary pieces here, yeah, the intersection, is that what you're doing there? One of the primary pieces of the advice you give is when you can recognize that serendipity and randomness are a factor, you kind of strategically plan related to that. And there's something about that's individually empowering about having that view and then being able to move forward with it. And I think it's much less passive than the typical school experience. Right. Um, well, so I talk in the book about uh, sort of three overarchingly different approaches to harness randomness, to harness serendipity. That, that is where you're going with this, right? Yes. Yeah. So, um, let me, uh, and this, I mean, there's a lot there. Um, I, I will say just briefly as an overview, that on the one hand, I talked about increasing number of, of click moments in your life, and I believe that has to do a lot with intersections. So I'm going to mention one sort of approach to doing that. Uh, it, is, it, is about, it is about actually connecting with fields or disciplines or cultures that are different. Because at these intersection points, you have unexpected realizations. My entire first book focused in on, on that concept. Um, uh, now, uh, that is almost opposite to how we think about things, even in our daily life, right? So say we want to improve something. Uh, the first question we have is, well, who are the experts in this thing? Who are the experts? And, we, and then we, we get them into the room, and then we focus in on that thing. Uh, that allows for, that does not set you up for the unexpected. It does not set you up for uh, a serendipity. Now, how does this play out in education? I think it is ex extraordinarily important to have um, uh, in, within education to encourage this intersectional type of thinking and to encourage the idea that when you do so, when you pursue this intersectional thinking, you will come up with concepts and ideas that are not necessarily at the back, in the back of the book, right? <clears throat> they, are, they are different, but it's through this difference that you can set yourself apart. Um, and there are any number of very specific things one can get into in that regard. But, but let me leave that now and talk about the second approach, which has to do with some purposeful bets. And some purposeful bets really goes to the heart of saying that even if you have a quick moment, it doesn't mean that you have you know, a great new idea or a great innovation. Because uh, you, you have to try it. And you're not sure if it's going to work. Lots of reasons for why you're not sure about that. But we see this play out all the time. Picasso made over 50,000 works of art in his lifetime. 50,000 works of art. Well, most of those works of art <coughs> were collecting dust in basements around the world because essentially they sucked. And we don't like to think of Picasso that way. We like to think of him as a brilliant genius. But, but he went through, he tested, he tried, and he was willing to have things not work and work with stuff that did work. Well, well that's, that's Picasso. We see this today, though. We see this with with uh, the developers of Angry Birds, right? I'll talk about that briefly in the book. Uh, they, you know, Angry Birds came out, one of the most downloaded games ever in history, but that was the 50-second game. And anybody who listens to this would have a good shot at something if they tried that, if they tried 52 times. Well, how do you tie that to education? You have to encourage, you have to encourage the, the, the willingness to try and 
have it not work, and that's okay. Um, there is, there is, this is extremely difficult. Now, one might say, well, I don't know about that, right, because we're studying history here, and, you know, uh, here's how Paul Rivera did his thing, and, 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 and so when I'm asking, when I'm testing you on that piece, you can't, it's nothing you could try about that. Like, there's a, there's a right or wrong answer, and, and maybe that is true. No. But where education is going today, right? <laughs> 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 because where education is going today, what do you, what, how, what are you doing with this information? What, what, how is this even helpful to you? How are you processing it? What are you, what are you, how are you working with this information? Well, here there are no, there are no, there are a plethora of options okay. for you. If you can't figure out beforehand which ones are, are, are the right ones. So this is and like, the last. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was going to talk about the last piece, but if you want to jump in here, let me jump in and respond to those first two, and then we'll go to the last one, All right? Because yep. this purposeful small bet and many bets is like shooting uh, ducks in a pond, right? I mean, it's this is such an obvious problem in our education system, right? If if Picasso was in a in an art class. He would not get good marks if his art was being graded by a computer algorithm driven program. It would not do well and so that's that's really easy. I mean, I think we can look at that and say, okay, clearly we're not giving kids the chance to try different things and we had uh, Jamie McMillan on who wrote legendary learners who talked about uh, people who had become learners as their careers and the kinds of things that they did and they were they made mistakes they were able to move on from one subject to another there are all of these things we've talked about but in terms of history I'm really interested in this piece right because there's a difference between teaching memorized names and dates yeah. and teaching yeah. the actual philosophical practical concepts yes. that existed at a time and if you can't explore those if you can't say, well, I don't get why this is important, if you can't actually have the argument or the debate, then the history doesn't mean anything, right? That's right. That's, that's exactly right. 100%. And you know, you know, everybody knows this when they think back about the assignments that really meant something during their educational career. Like whether in elementary, junior high, high school, the things that matter, the things that you remember, are, are, are insights like that, are, are projects like that, are things that, it's, it's not, it's not the, the, the date of, of, of events, of this event or that event, it is, it is the meaning, the underlying meaning of it, and the fact that you had to sort of reason your way through it, and in fact you could have arrived you could arrive at a at a point different from somebody else. I mean, it's and I'm with you. This is obvious. I think it's I think it's super obvious, and it is a great disservice that that the educational system seems to be going away from that type of thinking. I mean, it should be heading to <laughs> we should be heading towards it with accelerated pace, uh, but we almost do an opposite in some strange type of. Highly counterintuitive piece, uh, which uh, yeah. Anyway, it, it, it makes no sense because that's not that's not how the world works. I think you're going to move to complex forces, but before you do so, I want to talk about the the click moments in creating them, because the descriptions of these 
to me feel like they're very much in the tradition of education as liberation, right? As education as freeing you, becoming yeah. a better person, the liberal arts, right? So taking your eye off the ball, reading classic works, diving deeply into other subjects that aren't necessarily the one that you're most interested in, but kind of bringing these things together, uh, creating the intersections, following your curiosity, rejecting the predictable path. These to me feel like they describe a vision of education that, that for millennia has been one of two visions, right? Education is liberation or education as training. I don't think it's new, but I think there's a really good connection between your material and that vision of, of education that comes through in the liberal arts. I think that is true. Uh, what I will say, though, is that um, the understanding of how to make that education effective uh, is not always there. So what I mean, what I mean by that is the, the point where this becomes truly interesting is when you as a student, I mean student in, in, in school, but also student of life, try to make the connections. So to some degree, you know, one can think about where we have this area, then we have this area, then we have this area, and these are, these are the different areas that, that exist. Uh, but the interesting things are the connections between them, are finding the connections, the, the unexpected connections. Those moments where you say, whoa, I am seeing a larger piece in here, and that is interesting, uh, between you know, th this, this area, this, this, this topic, this, this field, and that field. Um, uh, and, so, and so I think you're right. I think, though, that the, that the focus on, on bringing, bringing and allowing students to, to bring these fields together is paramount in such a system, in such an education. It does mean you have to be willing to accept that things may go in a different direction than you expect. Someone may pursue something and then drop it. I mean, there are a lot of sort of consequences to this way of thinking. In particular, it's a recognition also, I think, in the book that passion is a significant part of this, right? Uh, Absolutely. Um, uh, in fact, when we work with corporations all over the world, uh, and organizations as well, like NGOs, we help them develop uh, groundbreaking ideas and we help them execute them. So it's, uh, uh, and, and the question comes up real early, like what type of criteria do you use in the selection of these ideas? A single most important criteria are in how passionate the team is about the idea. And you can't just ask the team, like, how passionate are you? Give, give, me, give me a number of the, you know, the passion meter. Um, there are other, so there are other ways you have to get at that. But the reason why this is so important is because passion indicates if you have uh, the wherewithal, the wherewithal to go through a large number of bets, even if they don't really pan out. What is going to give you the strength to keep trying? The passion, I use passion as a word, it's, it's a word to describe, describe that. Uh, passion is also what gives you curiosity, and curiosity is the, is the piece around the click moments. So passion plays a role both in how we think about creating click moments 
and how we think about space and purposeful work. I'd like to suggest that that's maybe a clue as to why we seem to be moving in the opposite direction. In the 1890s, with the advent of cheap publishing of magazines, you had this very democratized voice. And then you get the progressive movement, which essentially says we're, we're going to clamp down on that. It's too, it's too messy. It's, it, we can't control it when there's this much democracy. The 60s and early 70s, you have a very similar kind of process take place. You've got uh, a broad range of democracy, and then you have the Trilateral Commission and others saying, you know, we have an excess of democracy. We can't really govern. It seems to me that potentially the story here is that with the internet and the web and this sort of increased sense of voice, what's the role of the institution? It's either control or it's we don't know what to do. So my guess is it's the sense of, okay, we move to control because that's what we know how to do and it's uncomfortable to think of this much democracy. Wow, well, I, I mean, I, I think that is spot on. Um, the, the generally speaking, the instinct when you lose control is to is to try to reassert it. Um, I think there's one other thing that is going on as well, which is that um, it is the ideal measurement. So you know, uh, why is passion such a, a like like a company don't really want to dig into that. Uh, they'd rather do something like a return on investment. Well, return on investment gives you a, also a sense and measure of control. I talked quite a bit about why they, it's more or less useless in, this, in, in the process of innovation. But it still gives you a number. You can work with the number. And in education, it's another number. There are tests that allow uh, schools and nations to compare themselves with each other. And those tests mean now that if you want to improve, say, if you're a politician and you'd like to improve some numbers, you, you, you certainly, you don't have all that many metrics to choose from. So how, do you, how are you supposed to show improvements? Well, you know, these metrics is a way of doing it. And then basically you, you sort of begin to streamline everything to match, match, uh, match metrics metrics like that, whether or not those metrics uh, have any real relevance. And, and you know, actually, you see this not just in education, you know, K-12, you see this in, in universities as well. I, I, I say that one of the things that happens <laughs> as a result of something like the U.S. Census World Report is that you actually get universities and colleges to begin to streamline because they want to get up on this sort of the, the one metric that matters in fundraising and everything else is your ranking. And so how do you improve the rank? Well, it's obvious. You just need to look and see how these reports are put together. And you can do that as so universities all across the board are doing the same thing. And it means that you're squeezing out the unexpected, squeezing out creativity, and you're upping your way on the ranking because there's only a couple of metrics. And as long as you can hit those metrics, that's great. That means predictability to the roof, uh, despite the fact that the world is becoming more unpredictable. So Passi Salberg, who's a Finnish education thinker, calls this germ, which is global education reform movement. And he says it's like a virus. And this is an intriguing thought for me, right, which is social memes or ideas that transmit through cultures don't necessarily have to be healthy. They just have to be good at transmitting. Transmitting, right. right. 
So, right. I believe so that. is there a part of that here in terms of both the business success and in terms of educational success that a complex message is harder to transmit? And so the simplified message gets transmitted because it's sort of easy talk. I think so. There are a couple of things about that. Well, if you're talking about specifically around education, simplified message is is, uh, is easy to transmit. But maybe there's a way to make a complex message simpler to to transmit. So so perhaps that ends up being uh, one can sort of work around that potentially. What I think is more viral and 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 and, and, and troublesome is the fact that that the viral piece. Like in order for something to be viral, it helps if you can mesh yourself against something else, right? If it's put in a larger context. And that's why all these measurements, uh, I think, has a, has a tendency to be viral because they become standardized and you now have something to, to act against. You have, it gives you a pathway. It gives you an easy answer. Um, and it leaves you sort of stranded ultimately, fortunately. I want, if it's okay with you, I, I want to go back to a couple of thoughts that I had as we were talking about um, success stories. So it, um, yep. clearly we're looking at sort of the large scale stories. I think the Microsoft story uh, is a, you know, it's, it's a large scale story. There are a lot of people who live lives that are a lot smaller than that. And there are many of us who accept much yeah. smaller victories, right? <laughs> but it seems like Absolutely. the principles <laughs> still hold true. And there, it felt like there's this error of false success self-attribution, right? So one error is kind of yeah. telling the story of I'm successful because. And we've talked about how I do this. Uh, from your book, I do the rock, paper, scissors exercise when I'm speaking to, to large audiences right. and have them kind of talk about how much of this was luck and, and why do they feel like they kind of deserved it. It feels like the second and even maybe larger story there is the error of false failure self-attribution, right? So large numbers of people who feel like, okay, I haven't succeeded, but I'm, it, the story isn't told in such a way that I can recognize, hey, I had a lot of obstacles ahead of me. Uh, you know, I was born in a particular neighborhood. I didn't have people who sort of helped me along. I didn't have a teacher who really took an interest in me. I, 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 How yeah. do we think about that body of people and, and sort of communicating the falseness of that self-attribution of failure? I, so I, I love where you're going with that because, um, you know, one of the things that I focus on in the quick moment, well, let me say this. Humans, like we as, we as humans love, love stories, right? So in the book, I have spent a lot of time talking about how we construct stories. But the truth is the whole book is sort of a story. Why? Well, because we, we, connect, we connect with stories. Um, the, what I think is important in this regard is to the degree one can show that people that have succeeded uh, have succeeded by doing things that normal people would have done. I have an example of this. In other words, in other words is it because of the pure, pure brilliance? Well, we only call them brilliant today, but if you look at what they did before this, you know, given a certain um, uh, uh, you know, a certain field or a certain certain area of play, uh, uh, they may have done something that seemed utterly obvious. I, I'll give you an example of what I mean. Uh, Jimmy Wales is amazing. He invented 
Wikipedia. This is brilliant. This, this Wikipedia basically combines sort of the altruistic instincts of people online with the collaborative efforts of people on the web, and it creates Wikipedia. And, and I mean, you look at that and you go, you know, he, he, I mean, he obviously understood that and knew what he was doing. But you know, if that's true, uh, why did he launch Newpedia before he did Wikipedia? Right? So Newpedia was, had the exact same goal as Wikipedia. But the way he did it was in the following way. He, he, um, he reached out to experts and had them ask them to write posts. Uh, and they all agreed to do that for free. And then he had a review board, just like, say, British Encyclopedia, that would sort of review these posts. And then when they were approved, they would get posted on, on Newpedia. And after six months, he had about 20 posts. And so, you know, he said, well, this isn't working, so I'm, I'm going to change it up. And, you know, and then he sort of said, I'm going to let anybody post. And then he said, well, maybe anybody can edit when anybody posts. This is actually an idea he got by intersecting this concept that was happening in the software development field, the agile movement. So maybe I can use some of these principles for developing an encyclopedia. Now, here's the point of the story. Almost anybody you ask, and I, ask, I actually ask you this, if, if anyone here who's listening to this has been asked to launch Newpedia, I'm pretty sure they would have done it the same way Jimmy Wales did it. They would have researched experts, because that's what you do. They were asked them to write blog posts, because that's what the experts should do. You'd have a review board, because that's what encyclopedias have. And then when the review board re approves, you would have posted it. In other words, you would have been just as smart as Jimmy Wales. But when that didn't work, he kept trying. And that is what I think is the story for people that sort of are in what you call the failure mode. Look, you don't have to be Einstein. There is something about looking at how people have broken through. And if you look at their history, they will have tried some of the same stuff you're trying. And I think that is a way to at least begin that conversation, begin that dialogue. Uh, and, and the only reason we call them heroes today is because, you know, one of the things really worked. I'm interested in kind of the way that Gandhi used making your own clothes as a simple message that sort of empowered people to reclaim their economic dignity in India. Right, so this was a simple, symbolic way of saying, take it back. How do we help people reclaim learning? If 50% of our kids are held back at least one year, 25% drop out, 9% are medicated, can we, can we think of a simplified message that says, take this back, don't allow other people to, to define yourself as a learning failure? What would oh. that be? It's a great, first of all, it's a great perspective. Uh, I hadn't necessarily thought about it that way. I definitely um, like the idea of education being set up in a way that it, that it, it doesn't define as a failure or, or it shifts how we think about failures. In other words, not trying is more detrimental than trying. Okay, like shift how we think about it. Whereas the way it's currently now is there's a right answer and a wrong answer, and like if you come the wrong answer, you're a failure. Um, if you come the right answer, well then you're all good to go. 
Um, but, but that's just scratching the surface because what you're really talking about is the notion that people can take their, their learning and sort of make their own learning, like as you make your own clothes, and, and the empowerment that exists from that. Um, you know, there is, there's a certain viral, or, or there's, there, I think there's a certain aspect, um, and perhaps that, whether that rests on parents, I'm not sure, but I will say this, I like that concept. The way I've been thinking about education has been more in a, in a, in a uh, slightly more structured piece, right? Like, how would you rethink it in a school setting, for instance? Or how would you rethink it uh, in, a, in a setting where, where maybe, where, or maybe community-based? Um, you just got me something else to think about right now, which, uh, which is a great gift. So I like that. I, I haven't thought about the idea of you taking your your education and 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 intersecting it with with Gandhi's approach uh, of making your own sort of pathway to make your own education. And I love it. I think there's something really strong there. Well, we have a few minutes remaining, so let's dive even a little bit deeper. So. Um, one of the interesting pieces of the way that we currently do education is that it's based on uh, behaviorism. This idea that we can get people to do something through a series of rewards and punishments. And at the right. core of behaviorism is a belief that you don't actually have individual agency. You don't, you don't make choices. Mm -hmm. And it feels to me like at some fundamental level that's kind of our problem. That we don't understand the ability of the individual to create a platform for them to make choices, to make mistakes, to learn and to grow, because we think it's some, in some way that we have to create this sort of perfect shaped environment to elicit the response that we want. Does that feel like anything valuable to you? I, I mean, this has become very popular because of the, um, you know, the sort of behavioral eco economics has, has really made this incentive idea. Uh, Quite sort of widespread and, and popular. It seems, you know, it seems to make a lot of sense. Um, uh, uh, you know, from that perspective, I have a big problem with it. First of all, I have a research problem with it, which is that these incentives always are stories that you tell after the fact. Once again, right? So you look at how something got really messed up, and you're like, ha ha ha, they had the incentives wrong. But you know, how do you structure correct incentives? You know, there are, there are every single company still today try to structure incentives around sales. Now, sales is the thing, is the, it is the simplest function to create incentives around uh, because you're really trying to tie it to dollars. And there's still 50 different ways of doing it. And companies get it wrong all the time. And they tweak it. And they so you have this situation where this, every incentive is aligned to try to get incentives right. Uh, and you have thousands of organizations working on doing just that. And they still experiment. They still try it. You would thought by this point, this, this part would have been nailed. Like, we should have figured this one out and kind of like put, that, put it to bed. But no. I mean, they're, and that's because con conditions change. Uh, context change and people change. Even the same person changes. So what on earth makes us believe that we could do something like this in such a complicated endeavor as education? Um, now, 
you know, so, so for instance, to, to, to give an example of how I think that this becomes wrong-headed, say that you want to encourage creativity. Right, who wouldn't? Well, so there's a strong body of evidence that illustrates that um, giving it, a, putting out an incentive a priori beforehand inhibits creativity. But giving a reward afterwards as a sort of, as a result of, of having done something interesting, but that reward could be somewhat unexpected, seems to be more useful. So in other words, you know, you're doing it for its own sake, there's a passion about it, and then, of course, once it's done, you, you're happy to get some recognition for that. Um, and, and so that, it was, that proof sets up the problem right there. How do you create, how do you set up something like creativity with just incentives? Now, that doesn't mean that sometimes incentives can be perhaps a piece of the puzzle. I don't think that we can use it to create the perfect environment, the perfect being, with this notion of you squeeze a little bit this way and a little bit that way and now you're perfect. Completely ignoring that every single person is different, every single context is different, and what worked last year may have no may not work this year. And so in other words in other words, we have no clue how these incentives actually play out because the conditions are constantly changing. So this is obviously to be continued. <laughs> I mean, there's no, there's no <laughs> way you and I are not going to keep talking about this. But let's kind of close, and in doing so, I, I want to ask you sort of a personal question. Uh, when I talk to groups, I'll often say, what were the most significant moments in your own learning life? Uh, what experiences did you have that really sort of changed you, where you really felt like you were, you were experiencing some form of deep learning? And I'm going to redefine the answers now as Almost everybody mentions a click moment, a moment when a teacher reached yep. out to them or they trusted them or they challenged them or they were in a team and somebody took them under their wing. There, there are all of these stories that are click moments. What were your click moments in your own education? When you look back and you think about you sort of your interest and ability in thinking about these topics, do any moments stand out for you as having been really significant in your own life? Uh, yes, um, <laughs> there's many of them. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll pick two, and I'm making maybe I, I'll try to pick two that are not so what I call classic. I have classic moments of like you know a teacher having done something really you know pushed me in a particular direction. But I, there's two that stand out quite a bit, and and, and to some degree it is. And um, to fit with the theme that we had in this conversation, I will say that in some in some ways it it is almost in spite of the uh, the teachers. And and, and, and I guess I'm, I'm saying that I, I really want to I'm really doing that to emphasize the themes that we covered because I've had a few phenomenal teachers in life and they have they have just mattered so much to me uh, in and how my thinking goes. The ones I can remember most clearly are in, are in high school. That's probably because that's when I started reflecting upon it. But um, uh, but even in um, uh, even in junior high, and actually, you know, my, my very first teacher was uh, was pushing me in, in, in ways that I still remember. But there's two stories that also show the some of the 
have some of the issues around it. One was this. I, I grew up in Sweden somewhat different. So when I grew up in Sweden, in Gothenburg, uh, it was a very homogeneous society. It still is today, but there's you know, much more sort of diversity in Sweden today than it was when, when I was young. And my, my background is different. I, my, my mother, my, my dad is Swedish, but my mom's American. She is, uh, she's black and so, uh, and, and Cherokee also. So, so I look different. And uh, what happened was in second grade, I, uh, there was this book that was about learning, like, it was a reading book. And I went home to my, and my mom's a teacher. So education was very important in, in, in my house. And I pointed out to her that I, there was this one book that a, a, um, a friend of mine in class had, but I hadn't gotten it. And so she got really curious about that. So she found out which book this was, and she was, she was furious when she found out, because she's like, this, this book is, you can do this book in a day. In fact, she said, take this book and do it in a day. Just finish it. And she tore out every single book in my bookshelf. And she went down to the, <laughs> to the teacher. And she, um, uh, she showed her all these books. And she asked the teacher, you know, why haven't you given this to, why haven't you given this book to France? And the teacher essentially came up with an explanation. But that explanation ultimately was a result of, she just made an assumption based on how I looked, I believe, what my background was, that I just didn't understand Swedish well enough. And uh, it became very dramatic, you know, uh, with, with confrontation. And she said, you know, you need to give friends this book to read. And finally she agreed to it, and then, and then she slapped down the book that I already finished and said, no, you need to give them part two. Um, but it told me was that it was, it was the first time in my life, I think, that a hero, and she was really, my God, she was a hero to me, I saw the fallibility of it. I, I realized that this embarrassing situation that was playing out, that my mom was actually right. I was embarrassed with the whole thing. And it made me a bit more skeptical to, to teachers. Uh, Once you say to any, actually, not just teachers, to anybody, that sort of, I thought, knew what they were talking about. Uh, and, I, and I think about that quite a bit, and how, what went into the assumption she made. She was a very good teacher, but that assumption clearly had played out in her mind as to, you know, what my capabilities were. And in high school, there was another um, situation where I decided to write a book, a fiction book in high school. I played Dungeons and Dragons, so, so I wanted to write a book like that. And uh, I had a teacher who basically told me that, uh, that she was not a very good teacher, but she told me that uh, that, that was impossible. Like, the assignment, this was for assignment. It was an assignment that was meant to, uh, to sort of uh, a very focused specialized assignment. But she says, you know, that, that's not going to work. Uh, but then I did it. I mean, I, you know, I, 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 wrote, I wrote this book. Um, it was 500 pages, pages. I wrote, you know, every single day. Um, and I think about, like, why would she say that? She was trying to make me realistic. She was trying to put a realistic 
closeness to what was possible. Um, to help. Um, but it was, it, was a, it was a huge learning lesson that I've carried with me, which is that when we try to help each other, um, uh, sometimes that help actually is not help at all. It is, it is something else. And maybe education is structured that way. I need to be careful. I need to be thinking about that. So I said those are two things that which teachers have made have had had been has been inspirational to me, but it's been on the on the negative. To to balance that out, let me just bring across a a, 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 um, a, a fantastic story uh, from uh, from junior high where where I had. Um, where I had a, a sort of teacher in, in science, and he he upped my challenge. So what he did was he would constantly challenge me to do more. So I would he could tell that I was doing more, and he, he it had nothing to do with the grading. It wasn't even included in the grading. It was none of that. This was this was extra work that he guided me through separately from what the rest of the curriculum demanded. But simply because he saw that I was interested in it and maybe that I had a, 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 you know, a propensity to want to pursue those things. And it just ignited, I already was interested in science, but it really pushed me to a place that was very different and it just carried with me today. So I, stories. I think there's another chapter in you, right, which is click moments that aren't necessarily positive, but but push you in a direction because it's not hard for me to make this connection between your awareness of the fallibility of people you consider to be experts and your willingness to rethink how we think about success. Hey, this has been so delightful. I really want to thank you for coming on the show. I think we should close. You're up later than you thought you were going to be. But uh, well, um, I, it's it's my it's my it's my fault. Once again, I, I profusely apologize. Uh, we, we were also it was a whole team here sitting ready to to get on this. I've been I've been, I've been talking about this. I've been talking about this. I've been talking about this for the whole day. I've been very excited about it. I even had another conversation with education earlier in the day to get my juices up. Uh, so anyway, I'm glad we I'm glad we were able to pull it together. I love the book. The book is the Click Moment. Franz Johansson. Uh, this is a must-buy. If I ever make that recommendation, I, I hope you'll take it. Uh, please do look at this book. Thanks, friends. Thank you. Thank you very much, and thank you, everybody, that was on. Thanks, everybody. Good night. Coming up next week, Don Winkle on student entrepreneurship, and then in August, Ann Michelson. Lots of fun ahead. Thanks to friends. Thanks to those of you who are listening. Take care. Bye now. <laughs>